round about us and underneath us the everlasting arms. Hear and answer prayer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, my text is found uh, in that passage uh, and it's in the verse 8. Uh, I'm going to refer to other verses in the chapter but it's in the verse 8 of the chapter and it says, The voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. Uh, this book is called The Song of Solomon uh, but really the title is in the first verse of chapter 1 it says the song of songs which is Solomon's and when we read that it is the song of songs we are under, meant to understand that it is the greatest of Solomon's songs that he composed he composed a thousand and five songs and this is we might say the prince uh, of the songs this is the chief song of Solomon and of course it stands out from the other 1004 because it has been written under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. So this is God's word. Uh, the other songs no doubt were very fine and very interesting but this stands out just as we talk about the King of Kings being the greatest King uh, and the Lord of Lords being the greatest Lord. Uh, so uh, we say this is the chief of the writings of Solomon and it expresses us uh, we are told by one commentator uh, the, a song of the utmost perfection one of the best that existed or had ever been penned it calls for our close attention uh, now I will accept that there are many difficult things in the song of Solomon there are many simple and beautiful things that we can profit from but there are many difficult things. Matthew Henry says there are things a child can grasp but also uh, there are depths in this book that he says an elephant can swim in. So there are tremendous depths and it would be very difficult uh, maybe your minister has done it but it would be very difficult to do uh, a series of messages going right through the Song of Solomon. Personally I prefer pick out passages, pick out verses and concentrate when I'm preaching on those passages or verses. And this, this book shows us the tremendous love that the church has for Christ and the tremendous love that Christ has for the church. In chapter 4 and verse 7, Christ speaks and he says to his church, Thou art all fair, my love, there is no spot in thee. Now we mightn't feel that way. We might say, how can Christ say that? How can he look upon his church and say, thou art all fair, there is no spot in thee. Well, he sees us, uh, we might say, uh, as we will be. He sees us as perfect and complete through the shedding of his blood and the cleansing of his blood and the complete operation of the Holy Spirit uh, when we are brought to perfection and brought home to heaven. And so as he looks upon us and sees the future, he says, Thou art all fair, my love, there is no spot in thee. But then on the other side, we look at Christ. The bride gives a description of her bridegroom in chapter 5, and uh, she brings it 
to a climax in verse 16 and she says, Yea, he is altogether lovely. And she adds these words, This is my beloved and this is my friend. If you're saved, you can say that of Christ. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved and this is my friend. The greatest friend, the most faithful friend that a person could have. The hymn writer said, There is no love like the love of Jesus, never to fade or fall, till into the fold of the peace of God he has gathered us all. Now in verse 8, the verse I've chosen as my text, although I've indicated I'm going to go beyond that, uh, we have another aspect of the heavenly bridegroom brought before us, and it is his voice. The bride says, the voice of my beloved. And I believe she says it with emphasis. She is excited. She has been just waiting to hear that voice. And suddenly, we might say out of the blue, she hears the voice of her beloved and she exclaims, The voice of my beloved. Behold, he cometh, leaping upon the mountain, skipping upon the hills. She seems to leap for joy as she recognizes the voice of her beloved. And the picture that is presented here is a very powerful picture. We want to think about the voice of Christ in this message. Now the first thing that I want you to notice is this. The voice of Christ is a recognizable voice. You'll recognize the voice of Jesus Christ. The child of God gets to understand and gets to know the voice of Jesus Christ. Now I know that at first, uh, when the Lord called us, we may not have realized that it was his voice. That's what happened to Samuel. Samuel was lying in bed one night and he heard the word Samuel, his own name, being called. He didn't realize who was calling. He thought it was Eli, the high priest. And so he, he ran to Eli's room and he said, Here am I, for thou callest me. And he said, I didn't call you. Go lie down, my son. And then again, Samuel heard his voice, Samuel. And he thought, well, it must be Eli. It must be the high priest. And he ran. And he said, here am I, for thou didst call me. He said, I called not. Lie down, my son. Back he went. And a third time, the same thing happened. And then Eli realized what was taking place. And Eli saw that it was God who was speaking. And the last time that God spoke to Samuel, he called his name twice, Samuel, Samuel. And Eli had instructed him to say, Speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. It's interesting that Samuel just said, Speak, for thy servant heareth. He left out the word Lord. I think it's because... He wasn't certain. He wasn't sure. Is it the Lord's voice? Or is it perhaps Eli's voice? And uh, he's, he's beginning to, to lose his, his mind. And he's calling me. And he doesn't know he's calling me. Or maybe he's calling me in his sleep. Well, he says, speak for thy servant heareth. And the Lord did speak. And made it very clear. It wasn't Eli who was calling. It was the Lord. And from then on. We might say Samuel was able to recognize the voice of the Lord. 
Well, when, when, you, when you seek to know the Lord, when you seek to walk with the Lord, you come to that position where you're able to recognize his voice. In John chapter 10, Christ tells us, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And he tells us in the earlier part of that chapter that they do not recognize the voice of a stranger. They recognize the voice of the good shepherd. Uh, Many years ago, an American was traveling in Syria, and he saw three native shepherds, and uh, they brought their flocks to the same brook in order that they might drink, and all of them together, mingled together, they drank from the brook. And then the first of the shepherds spoke up, and he called out, Mina, Mina. And a group, a group of, of sheep immediately responded to his voice, and they followed their shepherd. A second shepherd of the three He called out, Mina, Mina, and another section of sheep, uh, they followed their shepherd. And the man who was there, the traveler, the American, uh, he spoke to the third shepherd, and he said, give me now your turban and your crook, and see if the sheep will follow me. So he put on the shepherd's dress, and he called out, Mina, Mina. And none of the sheep followed him. You see, they didn't recognize his voice. Each shepherd, the sheep recognized his voice. And they followed their shepherd. And when the man put on the turban and held up the crook and called to the sheep, they did not follow his voice. As Christ said, they know not the voice of a stranger. And What this means for us in practice is this. God's people will not at heart be deceived by false teachers. You you can say to a true born-again Christian, Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead on the third day. And you can set out all sorts of reasons why he did not rise. But at heart, the true born-again believer will not be persuaded. You might find his, his thoughts wavering, but at heart he has that, what we might call, gut feeling. Because the Spirit of God dwells in the Christian. And he has that gut feeling, that's wrong. I can't show why it's wrong. I can't prove that it's wrong, but I know it's wrong. It's not the truth of the Word of God. You can tell a Christian, Jesus Christ is not God. You can despise the miracles. You can pour scorn upon them. And you can do all sorts of things to deride Christ, to deride the Bible, to show that the Bible's full of mistakes and so on. But the true believer will not listen to you. We know not, we who are the Lord's sheep, we know not the voice of the stranger. We hear his voice. In other words, we recognize his voice and we respond to his voice. And where do we find it chiefly speaking to us? We find it chiefly speaking through us, through the word of God. It speaks to us from the word of God. That's why we must not rush through our Bible reading. 
Sometimes we get into a lazy, backslidden state. And I'll call it backslidden. It's not full-blown backsliding, but it's a backslidden state. And we're not as close to the Lord as we should be. And so uh, we rush through our reading. We don't spend time. We don't pray over it. We don't say, as the psalmist said, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Interestingly, the wondrous things are there. The Bible is an amazing book. And when you just glance at it and rush through it, you never see anything. And maybe you complain and you say, the Bible's such a dry book to me. That's because you're not spending time. You're not praying over it. You're not asking God to open your eyes. You're not asking him to speak to you. And perhaps there's another problem. There's an unwillingness, if God should speak, to obey him. You're afraid, perhaps, of what God will say to you. You say, I'm afraid God will ask me to do something I don't want to do. And so you become a sort of glib Christian. Uh, you, uh, you rush through things. Uh, it's, it's light touch Christianity. And in reality, it is not Christianity, true Christianity. So we need to spend time with the word of God. We need to focus. We need to pray. We need to ask God to show us what is there. You know, I sometimes think of those 3D images. Uh, and some people can't grasp it. You get something that's a 3D image. Uh, and it's just a plain piece of paper. Uh, and you say, there's nothing there. I can't see anything in it. But they tell you, focus. Uh, let, uh, let, let your stare really be on it. And you focus and you glare at it. You stare at it. And suddenly... If you're patient enough, an image seems to rise out of the page and the whole scene seems to be lit up. Instead of being a dull image, it all is lit up and something comes to the fore. And you say, that's amazing. How do they do that? Well, if you focus on the word of God and you spend time, something won't arise out of the page, but a person will. A person will arise out of the page you'll see Christ you'll see his greatness his majesty his power his glory his mercy his love his holiness Christ will arise from the page and you'll be able to focus upon him and to, and to see him I remember uh, the Reverend William Whiteside telling us uh, of sitting under the ministry of Pastor Willie Mullen. And Pastor Mullen would say these words, I want you to get this. And Mr. Whiteside says that when Willie Mullen said that, you expected something, as it were, to, to lift itself up and arise out of the page. And he said, sure enough, that is exactly what took place. Something you'd never seen before. It came to the fore. You saw it. You were blessed. And your life was enriched from the scriptures of truth. I tell you, the Lord speaks to his people. He speaks to those who want to hear his voice. Who are willing to say with Samuel, speak Lord, thy servant heareth. And I say to you, what does he speak to us?
He speaks forgiveness. Isn't that wonderful? When you read of forgiveness, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He speaks peace to our troubled soul. He speaks joy into our hearts. He speaks assurance to us. And uh, he, he tells us uh, in Psalm 85 and verse 8, the psalmist says, I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and his saints. God speaks peace. Not first, if you are not right with him, he, he might speak to trouble you. He might speak to convict you. But ultimately, the design is peace. That you might have peace with him, that you might have peace in your troubled breast. How wonderful the Lord is, and how essential that we should desire to hear his voice. I say to you, if you're saved, be sure not to slacken in your daily devotions. Do not rush through them. Give the priority of time, give first place to the Lord and to his word. For uh, you do not want to miss that delightful voice that has so much to say to you and so much instruction to give you in regard to your living of the Christian life. Then I say to you, if you're not saved, listen for the voice of God. Maybe you don't want to hear what God has to say. You don't want to know that you're guilty. You do not want to repent of your sins. But he's speaking for your good when he speaks to you. He's speaking to guide you away from sin to repentance, to faith in Christ, to everlasting life in your soul. And then, of course, there are other ways in which the Lord speaks. He speaks through the preaching of his word. He speaks perhaps through family devotions. And it's good to keep them up where the scriptures are read and prayer is offered inside the family circle. So I say to you, the voice of the Lord is a recognisable voice. You can know, you can know if you really want to, what God is saying and what he's saying very personally to you. But then I want to say something more. I want to say in the second place that the sound of Christ's voice means that he is not far away. And that's an amazing thing. Quite an amazing thing. Notice how it is put. The voice of my beloved, behold, he cometh, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. That, that expression, behold, he cometh, is interesting in the Greek translation. Uh, the Bible was translated by 70 scholars and it was given uh, the name of the Septuagint, coming from uh, the Greek word for 70. Uh, and uh, the way they have expressed it is this. He's here, he has arrived. So uh, what they have seen is this. The voice of my beloved, behold, he is here. He has arrived. You can detect the excitement. And uh, when I think of this, I think of children who are keen. Uh, visitors are coming to the house 
and they are welcome visitors. I suppose not all visitors are welcome, but I shouldn't really say that to you. Uh, but these are welcome visitors. These are friends, uh, and maybe friends of the children. They're looking forward. It might be their cousins or other friends from school, and they're looking forward uh, to their arrival. And you know the way the children are. They are so, so impatient. Of course, many adults are impatient. Uh, one of our ministers uh, preached uh, on patience. And I was visiting a member of his congregation, a man I knew well. And he, he talked uh, about his minister. And he's, he, I was saying, do you go fishing or shooting with him? Because the man did fishing and shooting. And he said, I don't go with him. He has, that man has no patience. And he says, he had the cheek to preach on patience. Uh, in the church. Now I'm not identifying in any shape or fashion otherwise uh, I'll never get preaching in his church again uh, but uh, adults can be just as impatient I'm impatient and I know probably you are uh, but here's children they're even more impatient uh, and you think of them, there's visitors coming and they run to the window and they run to the door and they think when are they going to come? When are they going to be at the house? And then finally, when the visitors arrive, uh, they say, they're here. Uh, they've arrived. And that's the sort of excitement that we have here. The voice of my beloved, behold, he is here. He has arrived. And so she's excited. She's excited because... Her beloved has come and she describes him as leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. She, she knows that he has made haste to come to her. Here is the heavenly bridegroom. And you know the Lord Jesus is always, he's always quick to come to us. He always hastens to us. When we're in trouble we might think he's long delayed but he always comes in time. He never wants to see us suffer. He hastens to our side. And when we read of the mountains, we think of difficulties. Think of some of the great mountains of the world. Mount Everest is over 29,000 feet high, almost 9,000 meters high. Uh, it's found in Nepal. And eight of the highest Ten mountains in the world are found in Nepal. You imagine someone having to cross all those mountains to come to your home. That would be an enormous undertaking. Well, here is Christ. He faces tremendous difficulties in coming to us. He faced enormous difficulties in coming into this world because he knew he knew he had to deal with the great problem of sin. He had to come by the virgin birth. He had to live a life without one blemish. But when you and I realise how sinful we are, what temptations lie in our path, how many times we sin in every day, and the mountains of sin that we build up in our lives, Christ had to live without sin. Not once could he fail. Otherwise the whole enterprise would have been destroyed. The whole enterprise would have been destroyed. And then he had to deal 
with the problem of your sins and mine. If you're a child of God, he had to deal with your sins. He had to deal with such a mountain of sin. And you find him in Gethsemane. In fact, you find him before Gethsemane. Uh, and the horror of what he has to deal with seems to fall upon him. And he says, now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? What will I say? Father, save me from this hour. Is that what I'll say? I want to be rescued. I don't want to go to the cross. And then he adds, nevertheless, for this cause came I unto this hour. In Gethsemane, we know he sweat great drops or clots of blood. An angel came from heaven strengthening him. He prayed, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. Some say that wasn't the cross he was praying about, I believe it was. If there had been any other way to save us from our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ would not have had to suffer and bleed and agonize and die and suffer the shame and horror of Calvary. What a, a, a load of, of trouble lay before him. What mountains stood in his way. And yet he was so determined that the bride can say, Behold, he cometh, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. Nothing but nothing would stop him from going to the cross. So great was his love toward us. May I say as well, Nothing today can stop our Saviour coming to us in our times of difficulty and trial. We face trouble, we face sadness in our lives. The Bible says that man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Job experienced enormous difficulties. We suffer bereavement, we suffer sickness, we suffer pain. Uh, we suffer the approach of death. We suffer death itself. And then, of course, we suffer because of our own failures. Because even as saved people, we fail the Lord day by day. But nothing, nothing can stop the Lord from coming to us. Behold, he cometh, leaping upon the mountains, skipping upon the hills. He loves to draw near to his people. Now, at best, at best, uh, and we, get only, we get only glimpses of the Lord. It's, it's in this passage that we read. Uh, we find uh, my beloved, uh, she sees him, uh, just, uh, he says, he standeth uh, behind the wall. He looketh forth uh, at the windows, showing himself through the lattice. That's just glimpses. And that's, that's the best we get. In this life. Moses was told he could not see God's face and live. So God said. I, I just let you see my back parts. In other words. Just the tail end of my glory. Just a glimpse. And it, it was a tremendous thing. And if, if, if the Lord draws near to us. Our hearts will be overwhelmed. We'll be filled with love. We'll be filled with joy. We'll be filled with awe and wonder. And that's just a little glimpse at best, the full revelation is reserved for heaven. And what must it be to be there? We have the hymn that says, we speak of the land 
of the blessed and the fair, the home of the happy, the Eden of love. And the verse concludes with, but what? What must it be to be there? To be there, to be there. Oh, what must it be to be there? What glory there is. What majesty. God in all his majesty and power and infinity. God in all his wonder. And in this life, we just catch glimpses. But the glimpses are tremendous, overwhelming to us. And the Bible says to us in Habakkuk 2 and verse 20, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. How great is God. How wonderful. When the Lord drew near to Moses, he was told to put a shoe off his foot. For the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. When the Lord revealed himself to Joshua, Joshua thought he was an enemy at first, or perhaps an enemy. But when the Lord said, as captain of the Lord's host am I now come, he, he fell down before him. And he says, what saith my Lord unto his servant? How good it is when the Lord comes, when he blesses us, and uh, when he warms our heart. We maybe think he's slow in coming, but that is wrong. He's likened to... Uh, one who's leaping on the mountains, skipping on the hills, or to a roe or a young heart. Dr. Gill says that these animals are well known for their swiftness and running and their agility in leaping. Christ comes always, always I say to you, at the right time and just when you and I need him most. Uh, now, I want to make one more point, and I'm watching my time. That's Almost gone. You perhaps are saying it's more than gone. But I will say uh, uh, this uh, as for third point. The voice of Christ revives his people. And that's where the rest of the chapter really comes in. In verse 10 of the chapter, the bride is invited in loving terms to rise up and come away with her beloved. What does he say? He says... Uh, my beloved, speak unto me. Rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. And then he adds these words, For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. All the dark, dismal days. When the Lord comes to us, all the dark, dismal days are at an end. Things revive. Great things happen. Think of what took place in the uh, great revival, the great awakening of the 18th century. Before that England was sunken. Of course other parts of. What is now the United Kingdom. Were sunk in darkness. Uh, one man went into. A church. Uh, into leading churches. In London. And he said you wouldn't have known. Uh, from uh, what was said from the pulpit. Whether the man was a follower of Muhammad. Or Confucius. Or Christ. And. On top of that, the morals of the people were at the lowest ebb. Uh, there were signs in some public houses, drunk for a penny, dead drunk for tuppence, free straw provided. Uh, and there was squalor, there was ignorance, there was degradation, there was immorality, and there was viciousness. And England was heading for a revolution. 
such as took place in France at the end of the 18th century. And then suddenly the Lord drew near. He, uh, he saved George Whitfield. He saved John Wesley and Charles Wesley and many others. One man in particular that I think of, William Grimshaw of Haworth in Yorkshire. He went into the, the ministry, an unsaved man. God saved him. And one time he was uh, bringing a visitor up to a hill overlooking uh, the town. And he said, when I came to this parish, all those houses you see, there was scarcely a praying soul in any of those houses. And now, he says to his visitor, there's scarcely a home where there isn't at least one praying person. And in many homes, every person in the home is a praying person. Every person, in other words, was saved. Yes, the darkness ended. And, and the old Methodists, uh, having been in squalor, uh, husbands cruel to their wives, uh, taking a drink and spending all their money, suddenly were changed. And Methodists rose in station. They ascended, you might say, the social scale. The winter was over. The winter was gone. And when the Lord comes, everything changes. You know, the leading men in bringing an end to slavery, bringing an end to children going down the mines and dragging great weights of coal behind them and working excessive hours, young children and, uh, and women along with the men, working excessive hours. The people who, who pioneered better conditions for, for work, uh, the end of slavery in the British Empire as it was then known, these were Christian men. You see the winter, the winter of cruelty, the winter of slavery, the winter of harshness and nastiness. It comes to an end when the Lord draws near. And we read of the spring, uh, and we read of the flowers appearing, the birds singing, the trees showing signs of producing fruit. And everywhere we might say fragrance is in the air. And all this stems from the Lord coming. The bride says, the voice of my beloved. Oh, he has come, he has arrived. And he says, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. For though the winter is past, uh, and the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, and so on. You can read through the rest of the passage yourself. Everything changes. All changes. All is different. When the Lord himself draws near. Depression gives way to joy. Defeat gives way to victory. There's fresh vigour in the service of Jesus Christ. Now to bring this about. We need the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And here's the good news. The Bible says. If ye then being evil. Know how to give good gifts unto your children. How much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? In Acts 5 and verse 32, Peter and John told the Jewish leaders that God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey him. So those two things go together. I must be willing to obey the promptings and the guidance of the Holy Spirit and I must ask, I must say, Lord, fill me with thy spirit. Pour out thy spirit upon me. Pour out thy spirit upon my family. Pour out thy spirit 
upon our congregation. Pour out thy spirit upon our minister that he might be full of the power of God. What a difference. What a difference. When the Lord comes down. The 1859 revival has been called God's river in full spate. See a river in full spate? It is really rushing on. Sweeping everything out of its way. And when the Spirit of God comes down, he sweeps everything out of his way. My, the, uh, the, the objections, uh, the sins, things change. Public houses get closed. People stop drinking. People stop swearing. People stop gambling. And in many instances, when the courts are held, there are no cases to be tried because people have become honest as well as sober and decent and moral and of course better still born again cleansed by the blood heirs of God joint heirs with Christ and bound for heaven have you heard have you heard the voice of the beloved are you listening for that voice are you reading the word of God diligently and prayerfully to hear that voice are you spending time earnestly seeking the Lord himself in prayer? And if you're not saved, he speaks through his word. What does he say? Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you 